is Indy Get Radio 107.7. I'm Patrice Stryford. I'm here with Nina and Anna, and we're having the fourth show in a series of shows on reproductive rights, reproductive health. And the first show was thoughts of youth about Roe versus Wade and what's happening now. The second show was uh, about the importance of women and gender studies programs, and we actually interviewed uh, Karen Cangelosi, who was a Keene State professor for many years, about the recent decision at Keene State to eliminate the women and gender studies major and just keep the minor. And the third show we did was uh, with the featured guest, Perpetual Anastasia, um, what it was like to be a doula and black feminism. And today we're here with Anna Mullaney and Oya Clark, who are going to talk about the linkages of reproductive health, abortion, and public health and social political forces. If you want to hear those first three shows, you can go to SoundCloud or iTunes podcast and take a listen. Yes, welcome. Um, And so let's all introduce ourselves. Maybe we'll start with you, Patrice. Hi, I'm Patrice, and I am a member of the Spark Teacher Education Institute and program, and um, I'm also a faculty member at Keene State Adjunct. I teach in the Women and Gender Studies program, which is now just a minor. Oh. <laughs> Anna, who's also a host here. Hi, everyone. This is Anna Milani, and I am also a member of the Spark faculty here in southern Vermont, and I'm also currently teaching at Clark University in Worcester, Mass., uh, a one-year visiting professor um, position and teaching public health there. And my name is Nina Kunimoto and I also teach in the Spark um, Teacher Education Institute and I am a graduate student at UMass Boston and I also teach at Community College of Vermont and we are um, when we come back from our music break we will have um, Olia Clark and we'll have her introduce herself then. So um, we're gonna um, have a little song break. Can you tell us why, Patrice, you picked Milk Quiet? Is, was there a reason why you picked that song? Oh, well, I think she was, her song was used sort of as the theme song for the women's marches and the, the women's rights movement. So I thought it was just a good song to, Great. to use today. So we're going to play Milk, um, her, the song called Quiet. Put on your face Know your place Shut up and smile Don't spread your legs I could do that But no one knows me I can't keep 
Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEW-FM, Brattleboro 107.7, um, your community radio station, deepening understanding and making connections. Um, and so, Patrice, could you tell us what we're making connections about today? And then um, we'll, introduce, we'll introduce Dr. Clark. Hi. It's so nice <laughs> to be here. Thank you for being here, Anna and... Oh, yeah, it's good to, yeah. Um, So we're making those linkages, really looking at what it would mean to reframe this conversation as a public health issue. It's Roe versus Wade. Sorry, I got my mask on here. Um, (laughs) Roe versus Wade in terms of the, the way that we think of it as overturned abortion rights. We're trying to reframe that conversation um, as a broader, what, what are the social political forces? What are the ways in which uh, public, it's a public health issue? And today in the studio, we have um, Dr. Anna Milani. And on the phone, we have Dr. Olia Clark. And so, Olia, um, could you introduce yourself for our listeners? Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Olia Clark, and I work as a an assistant professor of health promotion in Springfield College in Massachusetts. Um, And thank you for having me here. Absolutely. Um, I think it was really important for Patrice and I to to bring in two people who are who are in public health to really talk about um, reproductive health. So, um, yeah, thank you. Um, Patrice, do you want to start us off? with the what's our first question sure hi oh yeah so nice to be with you yes um hi so how do you think reproductive health and abortion change how does the reproductive health and abortion change when it's framed as a public health issue and what is the dominant framing of it in the u.s in your opinion mm -hmm. yeah go ahead go ahead olia 
uh, yeah, that was me, but I can go ahead. <laughs> um, so um, I don't think I'm an expert on the issue, so I haven't really worked with um, abortion in particular. Um, so, but uh, by my first training, uh, I'm actually a historian in addition to a public health training, which I received later on. So I think um, that probably will be my biggest contribution here today. So looking at the history of the issue in the United States and in other places. So, um, so I was born and raised uh, until a certain age in the Soviet Union. So I can talk about the history of the issue in that country, uh, the Soviet Union at the time, and before that it was a Russian empire, and after that it's a Russian Federation or Russia. So, but when we um, look at the reproductive health and also abortion as part of this bigger concept um, and reality, of course. So um, when we look at the history of it, um, we see that um, before the, almost the end of the 19th century, and uh, I'm going to talk about the United States first, uh, and then I will touch at some point um, the issues in Russia. So uh, when you look at the uh, U.S. history, um, so the issue of abortion was pretty common, legal, and it was a women's choice. Uh, almost before the end of the 19th century. So um, after that, there was a shift, um, and uh, the reasons are multiple. I can mention a few of them here. So the shift towards uh, um, viewing the issue as um, individual, um, well, it used to be individual too, but um, the ideological um, underpinnings changed. So now it was viewed not as a choice, but as something which was criminal, uh, which was sinful, and basically killing a human being, killing a life um, within yourself, so as pertaining to women. Um, so um, that shift, um, as I mentioned, was due to multiple reasons, but in particular, um, a few of them are pretty, um, pretty stand out. So one of them is definitely um, patriarchy because um, so this is connected not only um, to views that males had uh, about their counterparts, their um, female partners, wives, daughters, um, which were definitely inferior, weaker, um, they had different uh, bodily structure, biological structure, which was more connected to the reproductive health, so their actions uh, uh, were connected to uh, their moods, and the moods were connected to how the reproductive uh, organs worked inside them. So, um, and that view of women influenced um, how women were um, viewed not only in terms of their everyday lives, but also their access to uh, the workplace, uh, education, and other things. So, and the other 
reasons also include white supremacy and racism, um, and this are connected to two things. So midwifery um, was historically women's profession. So there were midwives, and it was also interracial. So there were midwives um, who were uh, black Americans, who were indigenous women, and also a number of white women. So it was historically a uh, women's profession. So it was not, um, they didn't get it by professional training um, many times, uh, um, but it was considered as a uh, um, very useful and needed profession. So they were not paid a lot of money for that. And when um, the male doctors started getting into the field, so they felt a real competition. So, uh, and they were trying to discredit the midwives, telling that they were uh, doing barbaric things, so they were not trained professionals, and so this profession should be really honorable, and they should get money for this, so material gain was definitely the issue. Um, and of course, this uh, discrediting um, the female, particularly black women and indigenous women, um, that also kind of intersects with the immigration issues because in the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, immigration to this country was uh, pretty widespread. And so um, there were definitely fears that uh, this um, in Britain with other races that it was called will be kind of weakening the white Anglo-Saxon race. And so that uh, um, I guess the abortions were also considered as uh, one of the means uh, for reducing the numbers of immigrants and reducing the numbers of uh, poor people and also people who were considered um, less superior and also um, somehow mentally uh, disabled, mentally ill. The eugenics movement. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. part of the disconnect is definitely to eugenics movement. Right. So this, I would think, some of the biggest, uh, the major reasons why uh, there was a shift in terms of how abortions were not only viewed, but also um, legally and medically uh, underlined. Mm-hmm. That's great. In I the mean, US. That, I think, like, it's so... Like to get that historical view of how where are we today? I think that's such an important way of thinking about it. Um, Anna, any thoughts? Um, because I feel like you, in your own study, um, have dealt a lot with like social forces and institutions. So, what are your thoughts um, about how pub, um, reproductive health is framed? Sure. Yeah. Hi, Olya. We wish you were in the studio Hi, with us. <laughs> Thank you. Olya and I do a, a lot a of uh, sharing of work together around public health. So it's nice to be on the radio <laughs> with Olya. And Definitely. thank you for everything that you just said. Uh, one of the things um, going back to around reproductive rights and abortion as a health issue, which is certainly how I see it. Uh, I think that what we see in the atmosphere here in the U.S. is that it's a very emotionally charged and political issue, meaning political in the terms of one party wants this, the other party wants that, and this is a way to mm-hmm. garner certain votes. 
But I think that in seeing it and framing it as a health issue, it's really understanding that reproductive health is taking care of our basic health and medical needs that are really necessary. And these uh, include medical intervention, it includes education, it includes planning um, regarding our reproductive health, including STIs, pregnancy planning, uh, it could lead, thinking about uterine cancer, uh, infertility, postpartum, newborn health. Uh, I think about like the just exams, these pap smears that is part of reproductive health. And that uh, I think the recommended is every three years, some, some women need them uh, every year. And that, that's an important thing of just basically that that is prevention and understanding why you would need an exam. And that is uh, a basic medical necessity. I think that also, just to relate it to abortion, is that for me, I understand uh, abortion as a medical procedure. And I think that there are many reasons for that, and that is between the patient, the doctor, maybe the midwife, and support people, maybe a, a partner, um, maybe people in the family, that these decisions need to be made with medical advice and need to... Um, need support around it. People have an abortion for many different reasons. And one of those that I want to point out just to drive home that this is medical care is that sometimes an abortion is um, a medical necessity to save the life of a pregnant woman um, or a pregnant person. And so one of these examples is that if um, a woman is pregnant and her water breaks tw before 20 weeks, this can lead to an infection in the uterus, which can spread very quickly, which is sepsis. And that um, can put the life of the mother in danger. And another example is a placenta separates from the uterus, and a doctor would recommend an abortion. Uh, another is preeclampsia, another condition that when your blood pressure goes way up and it can cause organ damage. Uh, another one is if a, a woman has cancer, and she becomes pregnant, and the pregnancy could interfere with cancer treatment. And so I think it's really important to frame it as a medical issue. Uh, one of the things that I was reading is that research around abortion bans is that the maternal mortality rate would shoot up to 24%, which that is because of a number of different issues, uh, people not getting the care that they need, these other medical issues I just talked about. Uh, and for black women, it's well known that black women die from pregnant-related causes three times that of white women. For them, with abortion ban, that shoots up to 34% in an increase of maternal mortality. Uh, and I think that the, the way that I was really thinking about this question of how is it framed in the United States, and I think it's framed in, in two dominant ways. One is a moral issue. Um, rather than a health issue that and then the other i think is as a political point so regarding the moral issue there's a very um well-funded conservative religious rhetoric that is um talking about family family values and that to have an abortion is um adding to the decline of the family and uh on the other side there is um this political point that says that, especially Democrat, Democrats saying uh, this is a Republican project, uh, this is a, and so trying to garner votes for the Democratic Party, 
where I would say both of them um, use it as this, this moral, this individual choice or moral issue or a political talking point, but neither of these parties actually look at the material conditions that really hurt families, like unemployment, like stress, like low wages, like our deplorable health system or our like deplorable housing. And neither of those um, parties are doing anything for um, women's actual conditions. Great. Just as well, an aside. You. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think this is a great point. I just wanted to add that um, definitely when we talk about public health and um, even uh, compared to um, medical um, system. So public health is, first of all, um, something that is supposed to protect and improve the health of the populations, um, so individual people and their communities. And when you um, started talking about the women who need to undergo uh, abortions, so you brought in their partners, you brought in their families, their communities, So, which uh, if um, the issue is not framed this way, so that basically deal, deals with um, individuals only and do not bring this whole um, community aspect into this, that this is a communal issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a women's choice, but it affects so many things within the communities. So this is great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Patrice, did you want to add anything before we jump into a, a quick song break? No, I just wanted to thank you, though. That I think framing that, reframing that is where we're, where we're headed. Great. So we're going to take a a short little break to let you process what's been said. Um, And this is a a song that, Patrice, you chose. Um, It's called Red Star Singers, a women's health song. Do you you know anything about this song? Well... I'm an old folky, as you know, oh, a folk singer. Yeah, so these are one of my, this is a folky, oh, way back, way back. Uh, yeah, I'm 67 songs. years old now. So, I, you know, I'm, I, this goes way back. I know you guys have a great selection of songs. We should have a Russian song, too. I don't know. Yeah. You, you were going to talk a little bit about the Russian history. I didn't want to lose that either. Yes, no, in the next segment, um, we'll, I'm gonna, we'd love to ask Olya about, you know, what her experiences are in the, in the former Soviet Union. Yes, where she grew up. So, um, so thank you. We are going to listen to Red Star Singers, um, a women's health song. Well, I ain't cute and I ain't clean, but I can't sing what I don't mean. No, I can't. Cause I'm a human being. Plant. Something's wrong, let me explain. I know all kinds of sisters in all kinds of pain. All over the map. Oh, with parched up abortions, trick a mona sand clap. Sometimes I can't chant, oh, my horoscope looks bad. Most 
This is Eugene Newman, director of the Vermont Jazz Center. The VJC is a proud underwriter of WVEWLP Brattleboro. The Jazz Center is located in the Cotton Mill Hill Building in Brattleboro, Vermont. We are an award-winning nonprofit dedicated to creating and preserving jazz through the presentation of workshops, concerts, and instruction. For further information, check us out online at www.vtjazz.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station and um, us here at Indigo Radio. We're making connections and deepening our understanding um, and today we have two guests, um, one Dr. Anna Milani, who is also typically a host, but today she's invited as a guest um, to talk on uh, talk about public health and reproductive health, and Dr. Olia Clark, and all of us are um, faculty in Spark Teacher Education Institute, um, as well as our respective places where we teach as well. So, Patrice. So, to continue the question about... Um, how we reframe this as a public health issue what and let's go, go to you and oh yeah we're we're going to get back to the russia history too we mm-hmm. i mean the the former soviet union um but how do you think the overturning of roe versus wade impacts people and communities on the ground is there you know what what are your thoughts about that yeah that's a good question uh i think that one of the things is that one is to remember that many activists and people on the ground knew that this was going to happen and so that this didn't come as uh, a total surprise Uh, i think that's that's important to um, think about because i heard someone say it was on um, democracy now today it was actually around this kenyan talking about kenya and the british empire and he said wherever there is oppression, there is resistance. Mm. And so I think that what Mm. I want to focus on with the fallout of Roe versus Wade and actually even possibly more um, bans coming along the way is that there are uh, activists, there's midwives, there's community organizers, there's doctors that have already put things um, and have been doing this also for decades is trying to take care of each other um, when something like this comes down. The, the one of the things is uh, is the I, I was I was looking at um, different uh, 
different organizations that are doing stuff on the ground, community organizations, and I came across there's a, a group of Mexican activists called Las Libres, and in Mexico they recently decriminalized abortion, I think within the last year or two, I think it was pretty mm -hmm. recent. And these Mexican activists are actually now helping U.S. women um, get, a, get an over-the-counter pill that is available in Mexico that, if taken um, safely, can induce a safe abortion. They are donating that pill to women in the U.S. They are also meeting women at the border and accompanying them into Mexico to guide them through the process. And if women are not able to get over there, they're actually doing virtual um, video, virtual care. Uh, so that's one example I wanted to, to bring up. Another one is um, Aid Access is another organization that is sending pills everywhere, um, abortion pills. There's women on waves um, into the international waters. There's also abortion on demand, which is uh, these vans that go to, to states, the border states. And I think I really wanted to, to point this out because, yes, having a ban on abortion is going to have disastrous effects um, for, for people, both pregnant women and their families, that it's going to increase uh, maternal mortality. We know that. Um, it's going to increase uh, unsafe abortions. And at the same time, I think it's important to stress that there are safe ways to have an abortion that people have been doing for decades um, with knowledge that is garnered within the community, knowledge that doctors share with each other or midwives share with each other. I think uh, I feel like Olya actually alluded to some of the history of midwives. Um, mm -hmm. that there is always resistance, and I, I believe that there will be, and that there will be networks of people helping each other. Um, so both is going to happen, and I think we need to figure out how do we um, help and how do we understand this issue to be on, on the side of, of the resistance to this. Great. Thank you. Olya, any thoughts? Yes. Um, yes. I think I just wanted to um, add to Anna's points. I'm glad she talked about the resistance. Um, it's both, I guess, organized and unorganized because uh, um, I'm sure our listeners need to know about the options that women still have uh, because uh, um, the um, immediate impact is definitely on the for people and people of color, um, their communities who have less resources, less time, less options. Um, and I just wanted to point out that New York Times last year, I think it's December article, one of the December articles, uh, was talking about the abortions and who has um, the majority of abortions in this country. And so they pointed that half of the women who had abortions were below the poverty line with an additional quarter of them who were really close to it. Mm -hmm. So this tells us who will be really impacted. Right. And uh, um, so <clears throat> when we think of that, uh, it's not only this particular um, legislation, uh, the role versus weight, but also this kind of clandestine um, other activities which were going on uh, for the last few years uh, that were meant um, 
are focused on undermining abortions um, in multiple states. So when we think of different laws that were enacted, that were issued during the last few years in multiple states that were um, um, <clears throat> making abortion, um, access to abortion more difficult for multiple women, um, such as uh, uh, that abortions clinic needed to have uh, certain requirements, needed to meet certain standards to perform these procedures. Uh, uh, there was something ridiculous, like uh, they were supposed to have, um, uh, I'm trying to remember, so they were supposed to have uh, hospital admitting privileges. There was one of oh, them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so this was kind of contradicting the fact that most of the abortions that were performed, uh, well, they are performed, most of them are performed within the first trimester. And when this is done, it's not really a surgical procedure. So people don't really need to be admitted um, like they're admitted in the hospital. So they just take a pill. And so that induces the abortions. And there were some other things. So that made uh, the work of abortion clinics more difficult and there were also the advent of the crisis pregnancy centers uh which is a different issue so most of them are portraying themselves as giving women options but they will never not under any circumstances will um perform an abortion there so a lot of them are church affiliated Mm. government funded and they do a lot of things uh, to confuse women, to mislead them. Yeah. Uh, they have uh, like abortion clinic, uh, not abortion. They have uh, mobile clinic buses, mm-hmm. so they actually come and park in front of abortion clinics and try to uh, get women, lure women into their buses mm-hmm. to talk to them. Um, so, and uh, actually. When you look at the statistics at this moment, there are more than 2,000, there are almost 3,000 of clinics like this versus, uh, I think it's slightly more than 1,600 abortion clinics um, that we have in the United States. Wow. And uh, I think there are four states in the South, and Mississippi was one of them, that only has one abortion clinic left for the whole state. Yeah. And it has 38 of the CPCs. So I just wanted to point this out that it's not only like officially this major legislation, but it's also like yeah. this, um, I guess, a network of things that yeah. has been done to undermine women's rights to abortions. Right. Great. Um, do you, so let's um, shift a little bit. And, and um, we're curious, you know, you grew up in um, formerly the Soviet Union mm-hmm. and now um, the Russian Federation. What was your experience um, growing up in terms of uh, reproductive health? Like what, what was the system um, or maybe the narrative <laughs> around that yeah, well, I can talk about this as uh, an individual and also as a historian, yeah. um, as I mentioned before. So um, I did not have any personal um, experiences with abortion at the time when I was growing up. So, uh, But I heard a lot of uh, cases, anecdotal cases from 
uh, women in my life, and I also studied the history of abortion in um, Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union. So um, I know that the Soviet Russia was the very first country and the only country at the time. Um, so after just after the revolution, which legalized abortions. Um, so and it was actually connected to something that was going on in Russia before the revolution. So for a long time. Um, so from the very beginning, abortions were considered um, I don't know, I mean, not shady from the very beginning, but... Uh, um, Since the revolution. Well, no, if you go back even before the revolution, so if you go back, uh, way back, like maybe 17th century, 18th mm. century, 19th century, so um, there's also different um, connotations, both legal and medical and societal opinions about abortion, so... Um, at one point, abortions were considered uh, a crime which was uh, punishable by death sentence. And then um, after Peter the Great, or whatever, Peter the First, yeah. <laughs> came um, <laughs> to power. So he actually made the sentence, um, um, well, he changed the sentence. So it was still punishable, but people were supposed to be exiled instead of um, punished by death. Hmm. So, um, but abortion was always considered, until the end of the 19th century, was always considered as a crime committed by women and also committed by those who helped women to mm -hmm. uh, have those abortions. Um, so this led to a lot of cases, a horrible number of cases of maternal mortality, mm -hmm. as you can imagine, because um, the abortions were performed by women themselves, by those uh, um, people who are not really trained as medical professionals, uh, uh, like older, usually older women uh, uh, in rural areas who had no idea what they were doing sometimes. So, and uh, it led to a lot of deaths among women. Uh, so, um, which actually led to, um, in 1890, there was one of the uh, big conference, like national conferences of medical professionals in Russia, and the OBGYN and midwifery section came up with a res resolution that um, abortions should be legalized as a medical procedure in Russian Empire. And this is actually was in line with what the legal community was also doing because um, the police was instructed to punish uh, women and those who were helping them to uh, get abortions. But they were having trouble with this because uh, abortions were illegal, so they did not uh, register a lot of cases. Plus, when they caught women uh, doing this, uh, women usually did not tell on those who helped them perform abortions. So in um, 1913, the legal community came up with the same statement that abortion should be legalized in both these um, communities, legal and medical. So the first reason that they stated why abortions are happening, so it was the economic needs and poverty. So that was the very first and 
both of them stated this in their resolutions. So that's what that's what the uh, that was the legacy that uh, uh, Soviet uh, uh, Bolsheviks um, inherited. And in 1920, both ministries, the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Law in Soviet Russia, came up with the law which legalized abortions. Hmm. So, but it was not only this. Um, there was a huge campaign, which was mostly educational, that uh, started um, right after the law was issued, that uh, sent medical professionals to the villages mostly, uh, and also to the urban areas to educate women uh, to start uh, doing abortions in governmental clinics where they will be safe, um, there will be sanitary conditions, uh, the abortions will be performed by professionals. So the medical professionals went to the villages, they talked to the women, there was like a lot of educational materials distributed uh, among those because there was also a literacy campaign. Mm -hmm. So it was like a concerted uh, national effort to do this, not only to make it legal, but also to educate people. Mm. So this situation, so the abortions were legal until approximately 1933, and then the government kind of felt that, oh, we need to um, restrict abortions because we're facing demographic crisis, uh, uh, because they were like the consequences of the revolution and war, a lot of people immigrated, so they needed more people at the time. And so then, Abortions were also restricted. There are only medical reasons left out, so people can do it if they had uh, any medical reasons. So this situation was um, in effect approximately until 1955, when the first um, the minister of health became uh, a woman. So that was the first time in the Soviet Russia, uh, and so she. Um, I don't think it was individual, actually, but she was uh, uh, the person who contributed a lot to legalizing abortions again. So, and um, at that time, also, which is also an interesting example, too, so um, the abortions became legal, but also the government started doing a lot to... Uh, promote um, a lot of social reforms, um, a lot of um, things to make um, people's lives better, to increase their quality of life. So there was uh, a lot of uh, um, nurseries and daycares and other public uh, programs opened for uh, families with kids. Um, there, there was a material monetary compensation for women who became pregnant. So there was an alimony for uh, divorced women with kids. So there was, um, so it was not only like one isolated issue of abortion, but also like a social, the big social national program uh, to get rid of those reasons for people to have abortions mm. mostly. Yeah. So that was going on until like the Soviet Union was dismantled. So I mean, of course, there is the still. Uh, I mean, it was always existed. There were some ethical questions and uh, religion-based 
questions, so Always, especially yeah. after the Soviet Union was dismantled. So this is going on, but uh, at this moment, Russia is pretty strong in terms of the women's right to abortion, and it's actually explicitly written in Russian um, legal documents that it's uh, a woman's personal preference and choice. Mm. So... Yeah, you mentioned um, education in there, and that was sort of where we wanted to go in our next um, segment. Anna, if you mm-hmm. could, I don't, you certainly feel free to respond to that stuff with uh, that Oya has just enlightened us about in terms of Russia and Soviet former Soviet Union. But how how does education enter in in shaping our thinking about abortion and about public health and about how to how we are trying to reframe the issue? Yeah. Okay. Um. Oh, yeah, thanks for all that. I think it's important for us to always be making these links to other places like Mm -hmm. Russia or like in Mexico, because there's common strains to that, of course, right? Uh, The control of women's bodies, um, how patriarchy functions, the subordination of women. I think those are all really important to make those links. So you were asking about education as it pertains to abortion or how we understand it, I think, right? Mm-hmm. I, I One of the things I wanted to bring in is that, um, and I know that Oli would agree with me here, is that as, as people in public health, we are always trying to link uh, people's well-being, people's suffering, disease, to the larger society and how society is organized. And so we're often taught in public health, this dominant strain of uh, the individual and individual's health. Uh, and I think that we need to understand the both historical context of people's lives. Um, we need to understand the um, political situation, the economic situation, relationships between each other in really in order to deeply understand health. And mm-hmm. I wanted to also, um, say that I think this personal uh, choice and privacy, I think it's a little bit, uh, some things to be teased out, is that I do think it's important that people are able to make personal choices about their bodies, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. When it comes to abortion, that is between your doctor, your midwife, your family. Um, No one should be telling you how to to decide about a a huge life decision and that sometimes there's extreme medical consequences or or the the, putting the life of the pregnant uh, woman in danger i i think that the problem is that when we say um, choice it often doesn't go into how um, choice people don't have the same choice uh, and I think that's really important, that it doesn't take into account the political, economic, social positions that people inhabit, which are different. And I, I wanted to bring in um, the uh, Native activist Justine Smith, because they critique uh, this idea of choice, which I, I think is just something for us to think about. And she says, the reproductive rights movement frames the issues around individual choice does the woman have the choice to have or not to have an abortion? This analysis obscures all the social conditions that prevent women from having and making real choices, lack of health care, poverty, lack of social services, etc. 
In the native context, where women often find the only contraceptives available to them are dangerous, where they live in communities in which unemployment rates can run as high as 80% and where their life expectancy can be low as 47 years, reproductive choice, defined so nar narrowly, is a meaningless concept. Instead, Native women and men must fight for community self-determination and sovereignty over their health care. And I think it also that relates to some of what Olio was saying, too, is that um, we have to take in these other factors, even when we talk about choice. I definitely would say, yes, you should have the, the right to choose what you want to do. If you want to have um, a baby or not, that, sh that choice should be available to all of us. Um, but we have to locate the concept of choice within the larger structure of our society, and not all of us have the same choices. And so then the longer and, and deeper struggle is then how do we make it so that we all have the same choices, that we all have good health care, um, that none mm -hmm. of us are living in poverty, um, that all of us can raise a child in a, in a healthy way, in a healthy environment, um, that all of us have good care. So I think that that's the piece of education that I think Olya and I both do around understanding public health in a wider sense. Right. Well, thank you, Anna, for bringing up the word choice. And I think the language that we use around the issue of abortion is definitely important. And um, it's important not only to change the um, real conditions, the uh, in practice, but also the theoretical um, <clears throat> descriptions mm -hmm. of how we do this. So in, in this vein, the issue of education is very important and also miseducation. So I just wanted to touch briefly on uh, um, the, <clears throat> I guess, the area of sex education, uh, which I'm actually working mm -hmm. with. Um, well, I'm working with health education, which includes health, uh, sex education schools uh, at, at the moment. And what I can say is that uh, um, currently only 39 states, plus I think the District of Columbia, this area, um, they mandate some kind of um, sex education in schools. So, but what's happening in, in reality is that uh, there is no, um, like, overall uh, universal guidance of how this should be done. And so there's uh, the questions of how to teach about sex and reproductive health and other related issues is usually left to the districts and to specific schools, which uh, um, it also depends on how people who work there view these issues, I guess, that um, the education that happens there results from that so and some um, that means that some students get this education some students don't uh, some students uh, get certain things covered some don't so and also um, I guess the um, another thing that's happening so the health uh, topics are usually taught by somebody who is also a physical education teacher and uh, they're not really willing to teach health so they got to teach PE so um, and uh, in some places like Texas um, which I was told by one of the health educators there last 
must agree that, oh, we don't really favor tax education, so it means they don't have it there. Um, and I think the last piece of kind of an interesting statistic that I saw recently was that um, <clears throat> so only um, fewer than half of high schools and less than fifth of middle schools um, are actually teaching all the health education topics which were recommended by the CDC and also um, so the high school students are less likely to report receiving sex education on um, like major topics uh, during the last few years than they were in 1995. So it kind of shows us that uh, the sex education is really deteriorating in schools. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so what about the youth, given that... Um, the conversation is that health, uh, sex education is where, where it's not, there's no guidance, it's up to the districts. It's, mm -hmm. And uh, some of the most vulnerable people, why are our youth? Are unwanted pregnancies around mm -hmm. youth? Or do, are, there, are there issues that we want to touch on around our youth? Yeah, I mean, I've heard stories that uh, um, the high school students were receiving substandard sex education and they were not receiving it and many of them said that uh, whatever they heard at that age was too late because they started um, having sex like around age 13 and so whatever information they had at that time was uh, they were given uh, they were getting it from either internet or from their peers so and um, so you don't know what the quality of, of this information was. And I know some uh, students who were telling me, oh, we were thinking that uh, you can get pregnant just from kissing somebody. Or, so, or some, yeah, <laughs> or like masturbation. So that was kind of interesting. So, yeah. Well, <clears throat> as we wind down, um, so in Indigo Radio, sort of before, our, we ask our guests at the end, and Anna, you know, you are, you're a host here, so you know this, we, we ask, you know, our guests, what are some ways that our listeners can be in solidarity or some ways um, that they can take action or maybe, you know, as we talked about reframing today, yeah, what can they take away from what we've talked about today? Yeah, thanks for that question. Uh, I think one of the things I, I would like to maybe leave it with, because I, I think that we can get, I had one of my students recently say they felt overwhelmed by public mm. health. <laughs> <laughs> and a longtime mentor of all of us here, Janaki Natarajan, once told me to take the word overwhelmed out of my vocabulary. Um, <laughs> so I pass that along. But I, I think what I uh, want to say is that I think that um, the abortion bans are misogynistic. Uh, they stem from, I think, patriarchy and, and control of women's bodies, control of trans bodies. Uh, and I, I think that we get, can get stuck in that, then it's just a fight against patriarchy. It is a fight against patriarchy, but it is also a, a fight against the system of capitalism because patriarchy remains a, a, a pillar of, of domination um, that capitalism needs. 
And so I think that it's a many pronged fight. And so I, I think that wherever you are and what you're doing is one to like, of course, be reframing this issue. It is a medical issue. Um, it mm -hmm. is a justice issue. Uh, and that it's also about the, the way that this world is organized. And so where do we plug in and how, how do we educate ourselves and others? So all these little things are important, like better sex education, absolutely. Um, better understanding of health, the fight for um, free health care. And to me, these are one and the same. I think it's really understanding that um, we should all be living in a way that supports each other and helps each other. And I think looking to some of those uh, abortion organizers um, is important to see what they're doing because they're taking care of each other. Um, you know, from Russia to Mexico to the U.S., mm -hmm. people are trying to take care of each other and, like, push against that. Thank you. Olya? Definitely. I would agree with Anna um, to do both educational work and also activist work about the issue. So educate yourself and others about the, what abortion is and other things. So I just want to quickly tell the story that uh, um, so my husband and I were driving to um, Keene and um, there was a billboard on the way which said heartbeat at, oh. uh, I think there was like very low, ridiculously low a number of weeks. So, and we both like scoffed because at that um, number of weeks, there was not even heart present. <laughs> so, so like we both know what like the biological side of it. And so we're like, oh my God, but this is the miseducation. So yeah. like, mm. that people see like everywhere. Yeah. And that's, Definitely, I would say, um, I know voting is not uh, the main thing, but definitely vote for people who can speak up about abortion rights. Because yeah. when you look at both Republicans and Democrats, I mean, they kind of, it's it's like a taboo or whatever. So, and I know Vermont has the um, uh, in coming elections, so abortion will be on the ballot. Yeah. So people can do something and hopefully we'll have I don't know, some kind of constitutional amendment at some point that will support people in making their own decisions about contraception, marriage, pregnancy, and family life or something. So this is my main message. Educate, vote, act in any other way, and hopefully we'll change the issue again. I appreciate that, Olia, um, because I, talking about voting, I mean, you know, when elections come around, like they, you know, uh -huh. people send like information through the mail. And um, and I agree with you, Olya, that, you know, voting isn't the number one thing, but it is, as Anna was saying, you know, a piece of of uh -huh. the of the push to oppose um, exactly. anti-abortion, but also capitalism. But I got this piece of mail where you know, I had to like, I had to like really read it, but they were, and, and I'm, I still have to do research actually. I just want to make sure that I'm voting correctly. I think it's like mm -hmm. act 22 or something here in, in Vermont mm -hmm. where it does actually legalize abortion. But then this piece of mail was like, was actually anti-abortion. And so I just, I want to make sure, but you have to like, you know, they, they really, Try, like you were saying, like those, like those mobile, you know, the the clandestine aspect of it, and the miseducation, and mm -hmm. people are busy, and they might not go do research. They might not take a moment and say, "Oh, wait a minute," you know. So yeah, I think yeah. <laughs> that's definitely 
an important piece for for us all. Um, all right. Well, Patrice picked this song by Christina Aguilera. We've never played Christina Aguilera on here. So I know she wanted to play this other one, which is an oldie. But I'm going to go with Christina Aguilera <laughs> because we've never played Christina Aguilera. And so this is a song we're going to go out with called Can't Hold Us Down. And um, so just a few things. All of us here, Dr. Um, Olia Clark, Dr. Anna Milani, um, Patrice Steifert, and myself, we all teach in the Spark Teacher Education Program. Um, please check us out. Uh, you can find us um, at uh, online and, you know, you can find us on uh, Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter, all the social media except TikTok. <laughs> just FYI, nobody here is young enough for TikTok, so we're not on there. Um, so please do check us out. Please, you know, look us up. Um, and and if you if you if you like, join us. Um, and we'll be back next Sunday um, at one o'clock with um, with more interesting stuff to talk about. Thank you. Thank you so much for having Bye. us. Thank you. Bye.